start this morning, let's, let's just pray and ask God to reveal to us his word from the Gospel of Luke. Lord, we do pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that understands. We ask for your Holy Spirit to, to travel the distance between the reading of this word and our intellect receiving this word all the way to our souls being transformed by this word. We need the Spirit to do all of that work. And we're just asking for you to be present here today amongst us, to transform us, to to conform us into the image of your Son through the preaching of his gospel. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the third Sunday I've had the privilege to be here with you, and it is a privilege. I'm really grateful to be a part, at least in a little bit, of this community, and I'm thankful for all the people that are in it. It's probably, probably reasonable to review a little bit of where we've been. We've been working our way through three chapters of Luke's gospel, just using the lectionary as our guide. And uh, the first week, we were in Luke chapter 8. And, you know, so the big idea there was that Jesus is disruptive. Jesus shows up to the Decapolis, this group of 10 uh, Hellenized cities very close to Israel, and he just disrupts their entire system. Uh, he drives out a demon or a, a legion of demons from a man who had been tormented for years. And then they all dive into these pigs who dive off the edge of a cliff. And the people of the villages in the Decapolis say, this is a little too disruptive. Can you please leave? I begged him to leave. And what we discovered is that in order to save us, Jesus must disrupt us. That's what the whole point of that trip was. He went to that place, specifically on a journey for salvation. Saw one person transformed in this uh, demoniac. But along the way, he disrupted things. And maybe the best way I've found to describe the necessity of Jesus' disruption in our life is to think of a shepherd in Scotland. There is a group of shepherds in Scotland that care for a specific breed of sheep. This sheep um, has a tendency, especially in that place, to infections of all kinds. Um, they, they have wool that is very, very much tight around their eyes and in their ears, and the moisture of the place creates a constant source of infection. So when this sheep turns about a year old, the shepherd has to do this dramatic disruption of its life. It takes the sheep, it plunges it under a bath of antiseptic fluid for an entire 30 seconds. The sheep has to be completely submerged for 30 seconds. And in those 30 seconds, the sheep is believing, certainly, that the shepherd is attempting to kill the sheep. And all the while, the shepherd is saving the sheep. That shepherd is disrupting the normal flow of that sheep's life for its salvation. And that's what Jesus does. And that's what we looked at in Luke chapter 8. Salvation necessitates some disruption. And the one thing that's disrupted, Luke chapter 9, is what we looked into, is the way we pursue life and happiness. There's a certain economy in the world that pursues life and happiness by trying to find more. We talked about the, the more treadmill. Whether it, It's not necessarily more stuff. It could be more achievement, more affirmation. We discovered that that doesn't ultimately work. We get the more and we want more still. We're not satisfied. 
whatever this world has to offer leaves us lacking. And so we looked at the passage from Isaiah that said that those who chase after other gods um, bring ruin upon themselves. That chasing just leaves us completely always empty all the time and exhausted. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, if Jesus comes in, messes up that system, um, and, and, and gives us a brand new economy, how are we happy in that new economy? How can we find any happiness? And we discovered that we find happiness and salvation uh, by, by seeing this Jesus and savoring this Jesus who is so different and for our sake was different and gave us the more of knowing him and having a secure eternity, that there is something more in living out that different kingdom economy right alongside of him, in fellowship with him, gazing upon him that is permanent and final and truly satisfying to our souls. This is what we were made for, to walk alongside of God, to know God, to see God, and to be satisfied by God. And so, yes, um, Jesus does disrupt us, and he does live a different life and call us to a different life, but that difference is deeply satisfying to us more so than anything the world would offer. This week, it's important for us to recognize that living first for the kingdom, seeking first the kingdom, following that king does actually cost us something in the short run, though. It costs us. So we we can look at St. Paul's letter to the Galatians today in today's lectionary, and he says... Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Pretty simple. The law of Christ summarized in one sentence. Bear one another's burdens. And then later he says, and let us not grow weary in doing good. Doing this good. And he's acknowledging the fact that this new kingdom economy of bearing one another's burdens, of living to give rather than to take, costs us something. It eventually weighs on us. And so we ask ourselves this question, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? It'd be hard to number the the amount of tear-filled eyes that I've looked at over the years of being a pastor and even recently in the new work that I'm doing where people have gotten to the end of themselves. They've given everything that they can and then you can tell that they've been asked to give a little bit more. Recently, I was in front of a wife who was crying because she felt so deficient in being loved by her husband. And she was ready to give up. She was ready to throw in the towel. She wanted to be divorced. And they asked me to be involved. And and I asked her, tell me what you're experiencing. What are you feeling? And she said, I do this. I do that. I give. I'm I, I, I. And she had all of these reasons why she could lay claim to the fact that she was owed something in return. She had a ledger in her mind where she had a certain amount of expenses that she had given and she was expecting a return on those expenses and those investments. And in every relationship, there comes a time where we hit that breaking point where we start wondering, is this really worth it? Am I getting anything in return? We grow weary in doing good and bearing one another's burdens. From our perspective, there's no more that we can do. We've done everything that we can do, and now the person in front of us has to reciprocate. And they don't. And so we say we can't do it anymore. 
we start saying, but if they would only. And what about they when they don't? And we keep track of this ledger, trying to find out fundamentally, is this worth it? Is there a return on this investment? And if we live long enough, and it's not that long, each of us eventually understands that to keep doing good, it's likely that we will do so and not be seen. You will not be noticed or praised for doing good. There will be times that that will be happening. That if we keep doing good, we're vulnerable to being hurt, somebody taking advantage of us. That if we keep doing good, that nobody will support us in doing good. We will not be seen, we will be vulnerable, and we will not be supported. And we grow weary in doing good because we don't find any of those things in the response of the world or our relationships. We don't see that we're seen. We don't see somebody protecting our vulnerabilities. We don't see being provided for along the way. Shortly after the passage that we read today from the Gospel of Luke, we have this old familiar passage of Jesus telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he tells this parable because he's tested by a lawyer. A lawyer who says, what do we need to do to inherit eternal life? Tell me the plan. And Jesus recounts the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Or he at least affirms that that's the answer that the, the, the lawyer gives. And then, and then Jesus says, all right, you've got it. You've figured it all out. Do this and you will live. And the lawyer, it says in Luke's gospel, seeking to justify himself says, and who is my neighbor? You see what he's doing? He's got a ledger in his mind. He's trying to figure out exactly how much do I, how can I minimize my investment? What boundary can I draw around neighbor so I can limit my investment and maximize the return on my investment? Right? So does that mean everybody? Because if it's everybody that's my neighbor, I don't know if that's worth it. And so he's seeking to justify himself, justify that limit, justify his approach to life, ensure that the ledger remains for him in the positive. That's our tendency. Jesus asks us to give our entire lives in, in, to, to the world in front of us, and, and we say, how much of our lives into how much of the world? This new kingdom way, living the way that in, in the footsteps of Jesus requires a lot for him, for, from us. And so Paul says, don't grow weary in doing this good. I know it's going to require a lot from you. Don't grow weary. So how do we not grow weary? Well, ultimately, if we're thinking of a ledger, we have to believe that the ledger will remain for us in the positive in the final accounting. That this will all be to our advantage someday. And we must actually live as though the ledger will be in the positive. We have to test that out. We have to see it. We're going to look at how Jesus calls these 70 to do that today. So in Luke chapter 10, I think it's important to see exactly how this passage develops. Jesus sends them out, 70, and he sends them out with, this, with basically nothing. He says, go out, Find what you need along the way. Heal where you find time, opportunity to heal. 
Whenever you heal, say the kingdom of God has been amongst you. Whenever people reject you, say the kingdom of God has been amongst you. Live as though you are following God to where he's already been. You're not creating the work. God is doing the work himself, that he's powerful, that he's sovereign, that he's in control. He sends them out with this presupposition. God is sovereignly in control and doing good work and building his kingdom. So they return, they're rejoicing. And it's interesting, there's two occurrences of rejoicing in Luke chapter 10. The first one is the 70 returning saying, Jesus, the demons submit to us. That is so cool. It's amazing. And Jesus just goes, whatever. I saw Satan fall like lightning. That's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if any of us have seen demons submit to, our, to, our, to his name with, coming out of our mouth. I don't know if we've ever seen that happen. Maybe some of us have. But I think that that would be worth at least a little bit of time to fascinate, be fascinated about. And Jesus shuts them down. It says, well, that's amazing, I suppose, but be more amazed by this, that your names are written in the book of life. For us to see that the ledger remains positive for us, we have to see the good, the real good in the good news. The real good in the good news is not that God is powerful and in control. That's, that is, goes without saying. If he's God, he's sovereign and in control. The real good is, is that he's gracious and merciful while being in control. His power is obvious, but less obvious is his grace and mercy. So he says, guys, you have to rejoice in the fact that God is paying attention to you very specifically. Your names are written in a book that sits before God. It's called the book of the life of the lamb who was slain. It says rejoice in that. Rejoice in the fact that there is a God who is not only in control, but also merciful and paying attention to you in very intricate, intimate detail. And then Jesus rejoices. He's the second rejoicer after these 70 have returned. And he rejoices to the Father that the Father has revealed his will to little children, to little kids. He's amazed again at God the Father's tenderness and willingness to condescend and to reach down to the unwise, the little children, and reveal to them. So let's think about this. If we're asking if we're seen in doing good in that relationship or in that community or in your workplace, does anybody see the good work that I do? Remember, our names are written in a book. The Father sees. He chose to write your name down, and he does not change his mind. That's permanent ink, folks. For those of you who have a pen, I would like you to write your name on a piece of paper right now. Write your name. Take a second to do that. Careful with your signature, not, a, you know, not the signature that's on the credit card machine at the grocery store, like a legit signature. Write it out. 
that motion, that pen stroke happens somewhere in eternal, divine, infinite places with that name. God has written your name. He sees. If we're asking if we're protected, Jesus says in Luke 10, 22, he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. In a similar passage in John's Gospel, he says, my Father who has given them to me, all these names written in the book, all these people associated with these names, my Father is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. You might be that little sheep in an antiseptic dunk wondering what is going on, am I dying here? You are in the Father's hands and no one will be able to snatch you out of your Father's hands. Certain short time frames, we might think he's trying to kill us. But over the long haul, we will see and we will affirm and we will praise with all the saints, salvation belongs to our God. He saved us. He brought us home. No one will snatch him out of our hand. Isaiah says it this way, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. He sees us as his children. He delights in us as his little children, Jesus said, and he protects us as his little children. He has an unstoppable, intentional plan to bring us home for our ultimate safety. And if we're asking if we're supported, it's his good pleasure to reveal to us. When Jesus praises the Father and rejoices in these little children who have just come back, these 70 who have just come back, he says, it was, Father, it was your good pleasure to reveal these things. If we're supported, God is not tolerating us. He's not just putting up with us until we can fix the mess we've created. That's not his disposition. His disposition is good pleasure to give us everything we need along the way. He didn't spare his son. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's happy to support us. So Jesus says, consider the lilies of the field. Consider the birds of the air. They're clothed and they're fed and you're worth more than than many of them. Your father sees he will protect and he will support you. And how, but how can we be sure of that? How can we really lean into that and be absolutely positive that the ledger's in the positive balance for us, that God sees, that he will protect, that he will provide, especially when we grow weary, don't we? Has anybody given up on a relationship in this room? You don't have to raise your hand because the answer is yes for all of us. There's been times where we have given up, sometimes permanently, sometimes for a time, but we've given up on a relationship. We haven't persisted in doing good. We've grown weary. So how can we be sure that we're actually going home, that he's actually written our name in the book of life? I want you to consider Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus asks his disciples to come with him because he doesn't want to be alone. And Jesus asks his father, if it's okay, could you take this cup from me? 
Are you going to protect and provide for me? Are you, do you see me? I need somebody to be close to me. Jesus experienced all of these things. When we're tempted to believe that God does not see, that God will not protect, that God will not provide, Jesus was tempted and experienced all of that in the garden and more and perfectly handled it. I said, but not my will, your will be done. When we haven't been perfect, in doing good, where we haven't been perfect in persisting in doing good and not growing weary, Jesus has been perfect. And he did it in our place. He's the ultimate substitute. He's the ultimate good Samaritan. He sees us lying in the road in ultimate need. He takes on our debt. He gives us all of his credit for this perfectly lived life. And then he gives all the resources for the rest of our healing. He's the ultimate good Samaritan. Jesus, the king, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that is the good of the good news. That this sovereign God who has a sovereign plan has not left us alone, but he sees us, he protects us, and he provides for us. So, I want to ask us a question. I want you to consider your prayers. Quietly, right now, consider your prayer life. Are we asking God to demonstrate his power? Often, for what we deem is the best use of that power? Or are we asking, show us your real glory? Remember Moses, when he, when he stood before God, he prayed, show me your glory. And God shows him his glory. And do you remember what God says as he passes by him? He covers him in the cleft of the rock. He can't see his full glory, but he sees the, the backside of him and he hears what God says as he passes by. What does he say? What's the first thing out of his mouth? The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is his glory. This is his glory. Not that he's in power, but that power comes with tenderness and mercy. Are we asking God to show us his disposition and his glory? Or are we asking him to solve our problems by his power? Those are two different prayer lives. God, help us to see what you're like that you see us, that you protect us, that you provide for us along the way. In Luke chapter 11, we're going to see the disciples ask Jesus, teach us how to pray. And you remember he says, for who among you, he says, ask and you will receive, but for who among you who asks for a fish will be given a serpent or who asks for bread will be given a stone? How much more then will your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He, he, he gives us a plan. He says, here's what you, if you really want to ask for something. So asking for fish is great. And, and even really good dads can give a fish. And asking for, a, for bread is also great. A good dad will give bread and he'll exercise his power to give both of those things. But how about ask for the Holy Spirit, which opens our eyes, helps us to see what is really true about God, helps the intellectual knowledge 
that we have travel to the heart. This distance, this 18 inches between here and here, is the longest distance in the universe. And so is our prayer life saying, Holy Spirit, be present and show me the Father's glory, show me the Son's glory, help me to see it so that I see that with them, the ledger is positive. That's the good of the good news. And then we have to live as though the good news is actually true. Because, you know, to know the good of the good news is necessary, but it's insufficient. If we never live as though the good news is true, if we never test it out, we will never see God come through. Jesus calls the 70 to move forward as though God was there, God was present, God was working, that the work would prevail. Live as though God is in advance and he needs no help and then see that that is true. But if we don't step out into that pattern, we don't see that it's true. If we never live as though the good news is true, we will never see God come through. You think of that good Samaritan. He didn't live in this earn it economy. He didn't discern anything about the man along the road, but that he was in need. So he was free to be compassionate. He didn't fear his own future security, so he was, that wasn't his primary concern. So he was free to give everything that this person needed. If we live with that kind of freedom, it's going to expose us to God's work where self-protection and self-justification blinds us to God's work. All we see is the work of our own hands. We need to let God reveal his delight in his little children to show us who he is and how he works. It's the only way to do it. We need to test it and live as though it's really true. But you say, it's really difficult to live that way. It costs us to live that way. Is it really difficult to live and seek first the kingdom of God? Or is it just that it's difficult in terms of the anticipation, the mental anguish? Obedience, honestly, is a little bit like, you know, I used to do this um, uh, cross-country ski camp in Marquette, Michigan. It's in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, the UP. And up there in the UP, they do cliff jumping in the summer. And there's all these big, giant granite cliffs. And, the, and uh, jumping off a cliff is actually not that hard. Just like obedience is actually not that hard. It's just a jump. I just did it. That's jumping off a cliff, 101. It's all it is. It's not that hard. But it's hard, isn't it? Especially when it's like 45 feet. So there was one that I jumped off of that was 45 feet in the UP. And of course, it's like 45 feet of ice cold water underneath it too. So you stand there and you look. You go, oh, this is so hard. And you step back and you stand. And the longer you look, the longer you don't do it, the harder it gets. Oh, this is really, really hard. Is it really that hard? No, it's just this. One-on-one. That's all it is. That's all it is. It's more about what's here than the actual act. We must admit that feeling seen, feeling protected, feeling supported in this is what we really need. When we don't feel that, that's when we say it's hard. But when we feel it, it's just a jump. And that's what we need the Holy Spirit to do in our lives. And don't worry that you're 
faith is faltering. That you're a little bit scared to make that first jump. My first jump off of that thing, I was petrified, but I had enough faith to jump. I travel a lot. I spent I, 100,000 miles on a plane in the last six months. Um, a lot of time on a plane. So much so that I, I can, I mean, it's almost starting to put me to sleep like a baby's, you know, like bassinet. I just, like I get on there, I go right to sleep. I'm totally comfortable with the fact that this plane is going to get to its destination. And every time I'm on a plane, there's at least one person who is not, does not share that comfort. <laughs> right? They are terrified. You can see them fidgeting with their stuff. They're nervous. They're asking questions of people around them. They are terrified. But guess what? They're on the plane. It's not the strength of their faith that counts. They had a very different strength of faith when they crossed that threshold onto that 737 than I did. It's the object of their faith that counts. It's the 737 and the pilot who's trustworthy. So if you have the faith that just barely gets you off the cliff, just walk over the threshold of the 737, guess what? You've chosen the right 737, and that's what's most important. Jesus saves us, not our faith. It's the object of our faith, not the strength of our faith that saves us. So, is there some place where you're wavering a little bit because it's going to be difficult? Somewhere where you could bear one another's burdens to walk this new kingdom way to find that it's more blessed to give than to receive, but you're resistant because you don't know if you'll be seen. You don't know if you'll be protected. You don't know if you'll be provided for. Is there some place that you know right now that you probably should jump? Commit to that. Do it. See that the ledger is actually in your favor. And then watch for God to work. Right? Our passage from Isaiah said that you will see and rejoice and flourish. There's this reinforcing thing that happens when we believe that the good of the good news, then we live as though the good of the good news is actually true. And then God proves himself to us over and over and over again. We rejoice in the God who saves, and we flourish. And the converse is true. If we always preserve and self-protect, we never get to live that way and see the fullness of God and his ability. This is what Jesus is calling us to in these passages. He'll disrupt us to save us. And in saving us, he plans for our true happiness, but differently than we would permanently and ultimately in a new economy which does cost us in the short run, but will allow us to end with a positive ledger in the long run. Salvation ultimately frees us to expend ourselves, to bear burdens, to share fellowship with Christ in doing so without worry, growing weary. That's life. That's the life we're offered in Christ. Amen.